So I know Miss Karen's excited and ready to join you for Junior Church. And we're going to be going to Romans chapter 11 in a moment. We're actually finishing uh, Romans 11 today. We're going to finish Romans 11. But by way of introduction, I wonder, do any of you like superhero movies? Ken, we have one. Anybody else like some super Marvel, Marvel movies, Marvel comics, Marvel movies? I get some, Sam, and I know Keith does, and a few of you. Any of you seen the movie Iron Man or the movies Iron Man? Any of you raise your hands? We got a few, right? And so with Iron Man, you know, I just watched those. I never really got into them. I was always a DC Comics guy. And I was visiting my younger brother last year, and he started this movie, Captain Marvel. And as the movie started, I thought, this movie's pretty good. So I came home and watched the rest and started Iron Man and some of the others and got hooked on them. You know, with Iron Man, if you don't know, if, if, if you don't know, you should go home and watch it. No, I'm just kidding. But if you don't know, you know, this very rich millionaire, billionaire genius invents this suit uh, because he's uh, kind of a prisoner over somewhere. And he invents this suit in order to give him you know, a shield around him and give him certain powers and he escapes that prison and then he goes, and I know I'm oversimplifying for you real comic book buffs, you can get on me later and tell the correct story. And he leaves and he gets out and then he uses his billionaire powers and not real powers, but knowledge and resources to invent this Iron Man costume. And it's this thing that he can just get into, and he can fly, and he pretty much can be shot at. And he can be pretty much like Superman, who is by far the best superhero out there, right? Some people wouldn't agree. You know, some people say Batman. But he for sure had that costume that protected him from all these things, getting shot at and all that. He could fly, and he could shoot at other people. And I wonder, do we ever feel that way as Christians? The Bible talks about being clothed with Christ. Being clothed with Christ. That means we have better than an Iron Man suit on. Uh, Colossians 1.27 To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In that passage, it's saying Christ is in us. Everyone know what this is? Oven mitt? That's my way of saying hello. Anyways, um, an oven mitt. Anybody try to pull out something out of an oven without an oven mitt? Who wants to do that? You don't do that. You need the oven mitt. You know, we are clothed with Christ. Christ is in us as Christians. And we are you know, the happiest in our Christian life when we put on Christ. We are the safest in our Christian life when we put, when we are, when we put on Christ. We can only really interact with God's word and have a relationship with God when we put on Christ. We are clothed with Christ. And that really doesn't directly relate to the passage today except to say when we go to God's word, we got to put on Christ. Now, technically, as a Christian, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. That means you're immersed with the Holy Spirit the moment you become a Christian. The Holy Spirit really doesn't leave you. But we could quench the Holy Spirit. We need a powerful dose of the Holy Spirit in our life. 
I was listening to Mark Lowry. Any of you heard of him? You know, he's a comedian, and I stumbled upon one of his videos, and it was, it was funny because he was talking about, you know, different denominations and different things like that. And he said, and he always talked about himself being an independent Baptist from, from birth from, from uh, Texas, and he said something like, you, you Pentecostals get miracles. Us Baptists, we have to walk in faith. You know, and he's obviously making a joke there. Uh, we believe in, in, in miracles as well. You know, God is still at work. But here's the thing. We're strongest in our Christian life, and we're clothed with Christ. And how are we clothed with Christ? By being active in our relationship with Christ. That means time in the Word. No Bible, no breakfast. No Bible, no bedtime. Time in his word. Time in prayer. The church family. We need the church family. And of course, faith. And saying, God, increase my faith because I need your help. I need your support. It's okay to say that. You read through the Psalms. You see David crying out to God many, many times uh, for help and support. And where are you, O Lord? And things like that. So we need God's help. And we certainly need God's help as we go back to the Lord's word. Any of you ever watch uh, courtroom trials on TV? Any of you? It's okay. You don't have to be ashamed. You know, it all started with OJ, right? You know, um, any of you ever watch, you know, maybe not real courtroom trials, but Law and Order and maybe things like that. Chicago PD, uh, somebody got me hooked on that show last year, and that really doesn't deal with the courtroom as much. But imagine yourself, you, you, you turn on the TV and you're tuning into a courtroom trial in your living room. You can see only what the camera shows you, right? You, you, when you watch it on TV, you're only really seeing what the camera shows you. You don't hear all the testimony. You don't get to question the witnesses. You don't get to see all the evidence. You don't, you don't hear the instructions to the jury. You're not privy to the conversations between the lawyers and the judge. When the jury comes in with the verdict and the sentence is passed by the judge, how adequately... Can you assess whether justice has been done? We would really not be able to know what justice required and whether justice was upheld if we are lacking information, right? I mean, you only know one side. You only know what's shown to you on the courtroom trial. And in like manner, how can we sit in judgment of God's justice? We don't have all the information necessary to judge whether God has been just. But many times we ourselves will say, God's not being just. God's being unfair and things like that. And that's really what Paul's been responding to in Romans chapters 9 and 10 and 11. You know, the people were asking, what about the Israelites? Why did the Israelites reject the gospel? Is God being unjust? Has God not been faithful? Has God not upheld his promises? And the Apostle Paul has used all this Old Testament scripture to say, God has been consistent with his promises. And we're going to finish up Romans 11 today. And you're going to want to remember that for the test next Sunday. Just make sure you're paying attention. Anyways, God is consistent with his promises. The Apostle Paul uses all of these Old Testament quotes to show that God has been faithful. God has said that only a remnant of Israelites would remain. Actually, God said in Isaiah, if he did not intervene, no Israel would remain. But God made sure that a remnant would remain. My theme today is there's a mystery of how God hardens and softens hearts. There's a mystery. My application, we must allow room for mystery and worship the Lord. 
Do we allow room for mystery? Oftentimes we want all the answers, don't we? We want to know. We want to be able to figure it out. In verses 25 through 27, we see the mystery of the partial hardening. Let's read those verses. Romans 11, 25 through 27. Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Lest to be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul begins to explain this mystery. He writes that he does not want them to be wise in their own sight. He writes he does not want them to be unaware. Can we humbly come before the Lord and say, Lord, I can't figure this out, but I'm for it. However you want to do this, I'm okay with. I've had to do that in my prayer journals. I've wrestled with things in Scripture, wrestled and wrestled and wrestled, till eventually, he's God. If I could figure out God, he wouldn't be that great, or I could be the fourth member of the Trinity. And since he's not taking any applications for the fourth member of the Trinity, and I'm not nearly that great, I have to surrender and say, you're Lord. I'm not. I can't be wise in my own sight. I must submit and surrender to the Lord's ways. His ways are higher than ours. Isaiah 55 says that. Do we oftentimes think that we can figure everything out? There's an evangelist in the 1800s. His name was D.L. Moody. He preceded Billy Graham and others preaching in stadiums, declaring the gospel. It's interesting. Somebody approached him after one of his gospel crusade type things. I don't think he called it a crusade. But somebody said, I took notes throughout your message. And you violated this grammatical role and violated this grammatical role and violated this grammatical role. And you were in error here and you said this wrong. And he responded, <laughs> something like 100 people were saved because of those things. You know, in our weakness, we are stronger. D.L. Moody declared the gospel. He said this. He said, I am glad, he said. I am glad there are things in the Bible I do not understand. If I could take that book up and read it as I would any other book, I might think I could write a book like that myself. Right? I think it was C.S. Lewis. It was. It's in Mere Christianity. Every, everyone should read it. And he said, he said, the Trinity shows this is from God. Because if it was not from God, if man just invented this up, we, we would invent something we would understand. Wouldn't we? If we were going to make up a religion, we'd make up something we would understand. The Trinity and these mysteries. Predestination mixing with free will. How do they come together? It's an antinomy. That'll be on the test. An apparent contradiction. A paradox. Not a real contradiction. Contradiction, an apparent contradiction. God is able to figure it out, and we have to surrender to him. Over the last several chapters, as I've said, Paul has been sharing things that are beyond our comprehension. Seriously, we cannot figure out the things of God, and we need to be put in our place, right? How often do we need to be put in our place? You know that all throughout Job, Job was asking questions of God. And, and starting around Job 39, God speaks. Maybe Job 38. God speaks, and God never answers his questions. God just says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I hung the stars in the sky and, and called them all by name? Job was faithful. 
But God still really put him in his place, at least in his thinking. And he needs to do that with me again and again and again. Can we explain how God orchestrates his plan of free will? I got ahead of myself and said that a few moments. It's that word, an antinomy, an apparent contradiction, a paradox. But it is not a contradiction. I need to emphasize that. God is so great to know how to work out both both free will and his sovereign plan without compromising either. There are things that we just cannot figure out. We cannot figure out the Trinity, as I shared. We must leave room for mystery in our life. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 11, after the parable of the seed and the sower, Jesus is explaining it to the disciples. And Jesus talks about giving the disciples secrets of the kingdom of God. Listen, there is mystery. And through the Holy Spirit... God lets us in on things, but we will not understand them completely. I'm sure all of you have memorized Deuteronomy 29, 29, maybe some of you. It says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed, they, they are revealed in his word. And it says they belong to our sons and daughters forever. But there are secret things. They belong to the Lord our God. So Paul is going to explain another mystery. He's been talking about these things since Romans chapter 9, about how God hardens and softens hearts, about how God has been consistent with his promises. God used all, Paul used all these Old Testament prophecies to show that God would include Gentiles in his plan and that there would only be a remnant. And now Paul begins to explain why. Now this is critical. This is the conclusion. A partial hardening. Notice this is not a complete hardening. A partial hardening, he says, has come upon Israel. And that would be the Jewish people. Their hearts are hardened, but not forever. Now, remember, this is really hard truth. And that's why, you know, Paul has belabored these points in Romans chapters 9 and 10 and 11. I'm just going to tell you, don't shoot me. Look at the word of God right here. He's saying right here, God had put upon Israel a partial Hardening. Now, as I've shared many times, when we find in Scripture that God is hardening hearts, we also find that people harden their own hearts. It seems to go both ways. But this is not a complete hardening. Their hearts are hardened, it says, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Their hearts are hardened in order to graft in the Gentiles. And then the Gentiles will make the Israelites want the gospel more. Remember, verses 11 through 14 of this same chapter, verses 11 through 14, from last week, Paul had shared, as the Gentiles come to know Christ, as the Gentiles come to know the Savior, that will make the Israelites jealous of what the Gentiles want. And we know that in our own life, right? A few minutes ago, I talked about this pastor and his, his father-in-law going to this other country and hearing these people worship the Lord. It sounds to me like that man who was a non-believer wanted what those people had. He saw them worshiping the Lord. And you have something. If you're a believer in Christ, you have something that others want. They may not know it right now, but, you know, hopefully we have this relationship with Christ. We are clothed with Christ. We have that Iron Man costume on. We are clothed with Christ. And other people see that sometime. They see that we have a hope. We see that we can have a peace and a peace and turmoil and difficulty. And they want that. That's what Paul's saying right here. The Gentiles are going to have the gospel and the Jewish people are going to be jealous. They're going to want it too. This is the time of the Gentiles. Uh, one person shared about the time of the Gentiles. Dr. Idonik shared this on Moody Radio. The Gentiles had world domination. 
From the time of the Babylonian world domination that started in 605 BC, and then Medo Persia, and then Greece, and then it went to Rome, and then back to Rome. It's going to go back to Rome at the end of days and until Jesus comes again. The fullness of the Gentiles is about finding many people among the Gentiles to open their hearts to Jesus as Savior. One is political domination. There's been a fullness of the Gentiles in the past, going all the way back to 605 B.C., a political domination. And the other is God's opening hearts and minds of Gentiles to be saved, right? If you are here and you're a non-Jewish in background and you are saved, you are part of that promise. You are part of that, that fullness of the Gentiles. And only at the end of the tribulation will all Israel be saved. Now remember, there have been many times in the Bible where God's prophets called the Israelites stiff-necked and stubborn people. In other words, hard-hearted. I have some of those listed in my notes, which many of you have. Exodus 32.9, 33.3, Exodus 33.5, Exodus 34.9, Deuteronomy 9.13. I know you're going to look all these up later, right? Deuteronomy 10.16, 2 Kings 17.14, Acts 7.51. All these passages and more are God's prophets saying they've been stubborn, they've been stiff-necked. In other words, what I'm saying is many times in the Bible we see God hardens hearts and people harden their own hearts. Many times it is going both ways. Many times people harden their own hearts before God even hardens hearts. So do people harden their own hearts? Yes. Does God harden hearts? Yes, both and. And then verse 26 says, All Israel will be saved. This does not mean every Jewish person will be saved. Without believing in Jesus. One person shared. The end of Romans 11.26 says that all Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. The Jewish people alive at the second coming. Will become believers and enter the millennial kingdom. That seems to be a dominant view here. That at the end of the, during the tribulation period, at the end of the tribulation period, before the millennial reign of Jesus, that's end times theology here, many Jewish people will be saved. Maybe not literally every single one, but many Jewish people will be saved and they will enter the millennial reign with Jesus. Now, another thought is, and I think it could be both and, that as this partial hardening on Israel is released, God will soften the hearts of the Israelites and many Israelites will be saved. I've shared before... In the last 50, 60, 100 years, there have been many Israelites being saved. And there's many ministries to the Israelite people. Paul then quotes Isaiah 59, verse 20 and 21. The deliverer will come from Zion. Zion means Jerusalem. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob means the Israelites. The deliverer, that's Jesus, came from Jerusalem. Moving on here, verse 27 continues the quote. God talks about the covenant with them. This is Isaiah 59, 21, when God takes away their sins. And this is prophesying Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah came from Jerusalem. Now let's move on. Let's look at verses 28 through 32. In verses 28 through 32, we, say they, we see they were enemies of the gospel, but loved because of their ancestors. Look at this. As regards the gospel, they, that would be Israelites, are enemies for your sake. But as regards election... They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. This is interesting. Look at verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. 
Now, let's break down that passage. Paul writes that the Jewish people are enemies of the gospel. Why? They're enemies of the gospel because they have rejected the gospel and they have persecuted Christians. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, Paul shared that we are enemies of God without Jesus' blood atoning for our sins. So anyone without Jesus' blood atoning for, our, for their sins is technically an enemy of God. They have nothing to cover their sins. Why does Paul say for your sake? The yours, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. This is because since the Jewish people have been rejecting the gospel, this opened the way for the Gentiles. So they, the Jewish people, have been enemies of the gospel, and this allowed more Gentiles to come to know Jesus. In verse 11 of this same chapter, Paul writes about this salvation coming to the Gentiles. Paul continues in verse 28. He says, but as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Now Paul is talking about how God chose Israel throughout history. God chose Israel throughout history. Remember Romans chapter 9, verse 5? Paul talked about how they have the patriarchs. In Romans 10, 15, it's similar. This is saying the Israelites, even though they are enemies of the gospel because they rejected the gospel and persecuted Christians, they are still loved because of their ancestors, because of the patriarchs. Verse 29, the gifts, and the, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. This is an amazing verse. God's gift and calling on Israel does not change. This election, by the way, was God's choice. This is about God's covenant with Abraham. This is interesting. If you go back to Genesis 15, God puts a sleep upon Abraham, and he restates the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. And it's very interesting because God alone passed through the sacrifice, which shows that he is the only one who canceled the covenant, can cancel it. Since God alone is the one who passed through the sacrifices in that time with Abraham, God alone can cancel the covenant. And he's not doing it. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The covenant remains. Verse 30, Paul now says that they at one time were disobedient to God, but now they receive mercy because of their disobedience. This just means that because the Jewish, peoples, because the Jewish people were disobedient, opened the way for the Gentiles to receive mercy. In this case, God's mercy. In verse 31, Paul is saying that will flip. They, the Jewish people, are now disobedient. But will receive mercy because of the mercy shown to the Gentiles. This is what Paul wrote about earlier in the chapter. Because of the Gentiles accepting the gospel, eventually the Jewish people, the Israelites will be jealous. And they will eventually receive mercy. In verse 32, Paul is saying that all are disobedient. The all means Jews and Gentiles. The Jewish people, the Gentiles, everyone needs the gospel. God wants to show mercy to all. And the all here means all people groups, all tribes and tongues and nationalities. God wants all to be saved, all to come to repentance. Now, how does Paul end this? In Romans chapters 1 through 11, it's been this rich doctrine, this rich theology. Now, how is Paul going to end all this rich theology? He's going to end it with the longest doxology in any of his writings. Now, doxology is about giving glory to God. It's about giving glory to God. Let's read this. Look at verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Look at verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory. Forever. Amen. That's a powerful doxology. We are all trying to figure it out, right? 
And Paul is right here saying, you're not going to figure it out. You're not going to figure out God's ways. God doesn't need you to be his counselor. Isn't that kind of humorous? Why would God need me to give him counsel? Why would God need me to pay him back for something? God doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need any of us. And that's why it's all about his grace loving us and seeking us out. This is such a powerful doxology. Paul has shared things that are too amazing to understand. The gospel is for everyone. Israel is rejecting the Savior, but that won't last forever. There's a mystery in the way God works. And so Paul takes a breath. And how does he take a breath? He says, oh, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. The theme of verse 32, that God will give mercy to all, leads to worship. There's a guy, H.B. Charles Jr., this pastor, and he says, The truth of God is shallow enough that a little child can come and get a drink without the fear of drowning. But the truth of God is deep enough that the greatest of scholars can come in and never touch the bottom. It's a mystery too, isn't it? It's shallow enough for a little child and deep enough for anyone who wants to think on it all their life. So these next several verses are worship. There's a depth in the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Actually, Paul just exclaims, oh, the depth of the riches. The juxtaposition of depth in riches suggests a bottomless treasury of mercy. A bottomless treasury of mercy. It is the longest of Paul's doxology. God's judgments, his decisions about the world and about human matters cannot be figured out by human beings. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. This means that we cannot figure God out. God is deep. God is deep. There is mystery. One person shares almost every heresy is us trying to scrute the inscrutable. You ever think about that? We can't. Paul says it's inscrutable. We can't figure it out. In verse 34, Paul expands on this with two questions with implied negative answers. Who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. Who has been the Lord's counselor? No one. And this is from Isaiah 40, 13 with allusions to Job 15, verse 8 and Job 36, 22 and 23. It's humorous. The Lord does not need counsel from us. Paul wraps this up with verse 36. From him, that means from God. Through him, that is God. And to him, again, God are all things. God is a source from which all things come. God is a means by which all things happen. God is a goal toward which all things are moving. He is the originator, originator, the sustainer, and the finisher of everything, ultimately. And in view of all these things, he deserves glory forever. And know what? He will be exalted, and he will be glorified forever. You know, when Jesus was told to make the people be quiet while they were shouting at Hosanna, he said, if these people are silent, the rocks will cry out. And there are certain psalms describing all of creation, worshiping the Lord. To God be the glory. Paul ends with amen, which means truly, truly, or let it be. This is how Paul ends 11 chapters of theology. Let's make an application or some applications. Let me summarize two. We must leave room for mystery in our life. Do you leave room for mystery? Or are we so consumed by things that we cannot say, so let it be? And we torment ourselves trying to figure something out. Maybe we torment ourselves in, even to the point of trying to scrut the inscrutable. And it takes away from our worship of God. Maybe it takes away from our faith. Maybe it's leading us down a heresy track. Be careful about that.
We must not be prideful thinking that we can understand everything God does or does not do. We must repent of any intellectual pride. You ever think of repenting of intellectual pride? We must understand that God does have a sovereign plan and he does soften and harden his hearts. Verse 26. We must understand that God will bring about salvation of many Jewish people in the future. This is most likely the end of the tribulation period, but it could have already begun. We must understand that the covenant with Israel is irrevocable. That's powerful. That's what verse 29 says. We must understand we all need God's mercy. We worship God. We must understand that God does not owe us anything. To God be the glory. In 1862, President Lincoln was 53 years old, and his 11-year-old son, Willie, died. Lincoln's wife tried to deal with her grief by searching out new age mediums. Lincoln, tried, Lincoln turned to Phineas Garley, a pastor of the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington. Several long talks led to what Gurley described as a conversion to Christ. Lincoln confided that he was driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I have nowhere else to go. You hear that? President Lincoln, taken to his knees, saying he has nowhere else to go. Similarly, the horrors of the dead and wounded soldiers assaulted him daily. There were 50 hospitals for the wounded in Washington. The rotunda of the Capitol held 2,000 cots for wounded soldiers. Typically, 50 soldiers a day died in these temporary hospitals. All of this drove President Lincoln deeper into the providence of God. What is God's plan? Why is God allowing this? He was driven to the providence of God. Lincoln said, we cannot but believe that he who made the world still governs it. Lincoln's most famous statement about the providence of God in relation to the Civil War was his second inaugural address. Give it a month before he was assassinated. It is remarkable for not making a God a simple, it was remarkable for not making God a simple supporter for the Union or Confederate cause. Isn't that interesting? Lincoln did not just say, God's on our side. He didn't. God has his own purposes and does not excuse sin on either side. Lincoln said the following, Finally do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war might speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 200 years of unrecorded toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid with another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. These last three chapters have heavily been about the providence of God. How is God working out all these things? Why does he do this? How does he do it? And Paul ends exalting this mystery really with a doxology of worship. And can we follow President Lincoln's example and trust the Lord with the things that are just beyond our understanding? For some of us, it might be why God allows pain and suffering. We look at certain people going through suffering, maybe yourself, and we can't figure it out. And I would love to talk to you and help you with that. But President Lincoln, right there, when he was going through suffering and all of America was going through suffering, just gave glory to God and exalted God, saying, God has a plan. He's in charge. He's still governing the world. 
For some of us, the mystery might be theological. It might be something else. At the end of the day, we're not going to be able to figure everything out. We just can't. That's what, that's what this is saying. Ephesians 3, Paul says the same thing. You know, he says that we can't understand the magnificent grace of God. None of us deserve salvation. Do we realize that? The question oftentimes is not, why do some people suffer? It's, why doesn't everybody suffer? We've all sinned and violated God's perfect plan. And God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and rise again. Because he lives, we too shall live again. And we are to be clothed with Christ. And as much as we are clothed with Christ, going back to my oven mitt wave, hello. Um, as much as we are clothed with Christ, we are more equipped to walk through this life. Because you can't walk through this life as a Christian without Jesus, Jesus' clothing. We cannot go through the dangers of this world without the Iron Man costume that Jesus offers us from the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that Jesus is with us. Oh, Lord God, we know even in the Great Commission, as you gave us the Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, even before the Great Commission, you said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. And then at the end of the Great Commission, you said, you'll be with us always until the end of the age. Oh, Lord God, we see a passage today of awesome worship, but concluding many passages, wondering as people tried to figure things out and Paul responding, we cannot totally understand the mysteries of God. You've declared many things to us in your word, and we thank you. The Holy Spirit helps us understand many things that are beyond our understanding. Lord God, help us to accept things that we cannot understand. Help us to leave room for mystery and help us to worship you. And Lord God, the first step is being clothed with you. If anyone here does not know you as Lord and Savior, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day where they turn their lives over to you. May today be the day where they surrender to you, repenting of sins, confessing they're a sinner in need of a Savior, believing that you died on the cross for their sins and rose again, trusting in you and committing to you. Help us all, Lord, making you Lord of our life. Help us all walking with you, surrendering to you daily. Help us all being active in spiritual activities. Time in your word, time in prayer. Being clothed with Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.